0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to New Books in Sociology, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Richard Osijo, Associate Professor of Sociology at the City University of New York. And joining me today is Justin Guest, Assistant Professor of Public Policy at George Mason University and the author of The New Minority. White Working Class Politics in an Age of Immigration and Inequality, uh, a study about this group that has drifted to the margins of their societies and are transforming their country's politics. Justin, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: My pleasure, Richard.
0: Great. So I was wondering if you just quickly tell us a little bit about your, your own background, personal and professional.
1: Sure. So I grew up in Los Angeles, California, and went to Public schools my whole life until until I went to university and uh, you know Los Angeles public schools are, are very diverse places that very much I think kind of paint the picture of the future of urban America and um, I was always very sensitive to that diversity to that, um, to, that to that very heterogeneous um, group of people that I grew up with and got to be friends with and so it inspired me to pursue a career uh, at least in the world of immigration and in my case studying it. Um, I'm also the son of a refugee. My dad was a refugee um, and, you know, so conscious of my own immigrant background. Um, however, the new minority uh, as a book it represents what a lot of people I think thought was a departure. They said, why is an immigration scholar studying white working class people? And, you know, for me, it was imperative that I do and that we learn more about this group of people because they are our usual subjects, primary antagonist. Uh, in many ways, uh, they are the sort of opposite pole of immigrant politics. They are the capital O other for immigrants in the United States and Europe and beyond. And so I thought that we had a very uncomplicated understanding of this group of people uh, and uh, and wanted to, to basically render it some greater nuance so we could be- better understand what's going on and how we can improve social cohesion and relationships inside of society.
0: Cool. That's a great origin for for this project. And um, as you're implying here, the the white working class really used to be central to politics in the well, in the countries that you study, the United States and the United Kingdom. While now the opposite is the case. And your your goal in the book is to really understand uh, white working class marginality and what you call the post-traumatic city and you've chosen two such places Youngstown in Ohio in the United States and East London in the UK as your cases so tell us a little bit about this this theory of marginality and about these settings these post-traumatic cities
1: yeah i, I don't think that uh, Youngstown or East London in the UK are unique in their post-traumatic status i actually think that they represent two of many such cities uh, in the United States, in the United Kingdom, but also in Europe and elsewhere, Australia, Canada, these cities that were heavily reliant on single industries or single factories even uh, to power their economy. And in many ways that also defined their society and their social affairs and their political affairs as well, these kind of factory towns. Um, a lot of them basically became these post-apocalyptic shells of their former grandeur and glory, uh, as the manufacturing era declined and gave way to this high technology, digital, uh, global economy and, and, and service sector based economy that we're experiencing right now. And, uh, you know, in, in the case of Youngstown, Ohio, what made it so, so attractive to me as a case was not only the rich industrial history, uh, and collective bargaining history and, uh, and, and, and um, economic history of its steel production. Um, but also the the remarkable collapse, the remarkable, stunning fall from grace that it's experienced. It it now leads the United States in concentrated poverty. In in the case of East London, um, this was a different kind of of, of trauma that they experienced, one that was much more demographic uh, in nature. Youngstown changed demographically as it declined. It became uh, more heavily African-American than white but it wasn't because lots of black people moved into the city. It was simply that they didn't move out of the city as quickly as white people. In the case of London and East London, um, a a rather homogeneously white working class area that was as industrialized as is Youngstown, um, eventually was absorbed by greater London and the cheap housing out there eventually was, um, uh, taken up by London's enormous amount of immigrants, whether they're from Eastern Europe, sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia or the or the Caribbean, uh, people flock to East London just like they flock to Greater London, and so these were two interesting cases that offered a lot of similarity in their in their kind of uh, construction, uh, but actually um, responded and experienced the new economy very differently. One being absorbed by it and transformed by it; the other uh, being ruined by it.
0: Yeah, and, and now many would scoff, I guess, uh, at least uh, you know up until the last year or so with the rise of Trump and Brexit, many would scoff at the idea that whites are now a minority in the U S and the UK. But you obviously make a distinction here between this idea of, minoritization and marginalization and talk about how members of the white working class experience everyday life in a way that really leads them to uh, make claims to a minority status while their feelings of disempowerment have become very entrenched. Um, please describe these, these sources and their consequences.
1: Sure. Well, the idea that white working class people are a minority did not come from me. Uh, this was a sentiment that I found really prevalent and prominent uh, in interviews with my various subjects, both in the United States and in the United Kingdom. They felt like they were becoming minorities in the countries that they once defined. And so I channeled that energy into the title, um, both because I knew that it would be provocative, but also because I thought that it it also challenged us to reconsider, well, what exactly do we mean by the word minority? is minority purely, is it contingent on race? Because if so, how good is a concept? How strong is a concept? If it is only applicable to certain races or ethnicities of people to me, minoritization is far more about a sense of power and a sense of advantage and white working class people feel, and there are a lot of, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that they have in fact been disempowered over the course of the last half century. And so for that reason, I thought that it was worth having this debate, worth having this argument about how we understand uh, what marginality and minoritization means, but also to bring attention, to draw attention to white working class people's alternative marginality and the way that they're experiencing the world, Um, both in the interest of understanding and having empathy for their plight and better understand the behavior that they display, but also their relationships with immigrants and people of color.
0: Right. Now, to go to your cases, you focus on the areas of barking and dagging them in, in East London. And as you've said, this, these areas, they really went from being very tight-knit and homogeneous to being more diverse but without any kind of solid economic foundation. And you found how people feel. They feel displaced politically, they feel under threat in their own neighborhood, Uh, they feel alienated, and, you know, what they have to say is that they they feel like they're being silenced, right?
1: Yeah, and a lot of that stuff goes together um, because, you know, there there actually are physical markers of displacement throughout Barking and Dagenham. So Barking and Dagenham, when it was homogenous, there was this sense that everyone knew each other, you got jobs through personal networks, and and you you know, everyone was scratching each other's backs and, and there is a sense of cohesion and community there. And now today there are these relics of where community, uh, or at least the white working class community, uh, used to be. Pubs have shut down at an enormously quick rate, and they're they're kind of their their shelter, they're the ruins of these pubs, sit there and taunt residents about how good times once were. Working man's clubs uh, have closed down the ones that remain are these sort of bastions of the past. Um, council housing and tower blocks are, are filled with immigrants where white working class people once lived and people who associated certain residences with their friends and family uh, are reminded just how much their neighborhood has changed by simply, you know, remembering who the residents are now today. Um, and so, and then of course you can look at the schools as well. The schools are a picture, a demographic picture of what is to come for Barking and Dagenham. And again, it reinforces the demographic change that really irks a lot of the white working class people there. Um, but in terms of being silenced, Richard, the white working class people have lamented these changes for a long time, both crying, you know, crying out about, uh, the economic change and also the social change. And they have felt consistently ignored, or if not shushed, by mainstream society and the, and the elite that govern them. And so they don't just feel like the silent majority in the way that Trump and Nigel Farage in the United Kingdom has referred to them. They feel like the silenced majority. They feel like they have been muzzled by their leaders to shut down their sense of grievance however legitimate or illegitimate we want to think it is.
0: Yeah, and you have some really, really interesting examples and, and portraits of, of some of the people in, in East London uh, to, to really represent that silencing. Now, while East London, though, is about the politics of displacement, you say that Youngstown is about the politics of Insecurity, particularly how residents have a a collective memory of the good old days, something we've been hearing a lot about in the U.S. And they really hold out hope for another large industry. Of course, it was steel for for Youngstown in the 20th, 19th and 20th centuries coming to replace the 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 lost large steel industry. But they're also very uh, distrustful people and also very insecure, as you say, in many ways
1: well everything has been taken away from the residents of Youngstown Ohio their prosperity economically their political clout with unions and you know the visits from political leaders the sense of consultation they once had their social power as a, as a, a, which derived from their sense of authenticity and heritage and being that that backbone of american labor and the american economy um, even domestically, the men in Youngstown, Ohio feel a sense of insecurity, a sense of loss over their status in the household because their wives are often now the breadwinners in the family. So there is this sense that everything has been taken away and that everything now is contingent. And that kind of instability is a contagion that spreads throughout white working class people's lives there. Their relationships become more contingent because their jobs are more contingent because their political system is become very contingent and so it is this proliferating contagion throughout their society but in terms of um, in, in terms of the the nostalgia that has consumed Youngstown and much of the rest of the United States it that's something that actually transcends the Atlantic um, what I viewed in both cases Richard was this pervasive uh, nostalgia that yearning for the good old days that golden era um, that in many ways was really just constructed in the, in the images of the past that people uh, built in their minds, peering backward through these rose-colored, rose-tinted lenses. Um, and so, you know, I think that the nostalgia is one of the most powerful motivators of politics right now, alongside with fear. And they go hand in hand because the nostalgia is a yearning for the past and the fear, of course, refers to the future.
0: Yes, and I think you have a great line in there about how, I think it is a reference to Youngstown, but the people there, they they can't seem to fathom a future that they haven't already experienced. It's always based on something that they uh, remember or think they remember in a romantic way from from the past. That's right. Now, it's it's very easy, I think, to get really caught up in political discussions and headlines, especially in the... 24-hour news cycle, the age of the internet and social media. But really halfway through the book, I think you really, uh, after explaining the contexts and you you really restate the book's main objective, which is very noble. It's, it's very simply like what factors lead people from similar backgrounds and circumstances to engage the political system in different ways? Because you did find a very fascinating amount of variety in how they respond to these conditions.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. I, it, it, you know, White working class people do not all vote for the radical right. They do not all support Donald Trump. They do not all necessarily even engage politically. A lot of people abstain and sit out politics and throw their hands in the air and lament their, their, their disempowerment. And so to really understand, um, and, and so my goal was to really understand uh, why people made these different choices and what was driving people Um, but certainly the headlines, you know, that I was most interested in addressing was what was driving this group of people to vote for radical right candidates and parties. Um, and and of course I think it's worth emphasizing, Richard, that, you know, this book, I started writing it back in 2011, uh, you know, when Donald Trump was a reality TV star. And of course the idea that Britain would leave the European union was unheard of, unfathomable at the time. Uh, and so you know, these politics, these radical right politics emerged in the United States and the United Kingdom before my eyes as I was doing conducting the research. And so the impetus to better understand radicalization amongst white working class people grew more and more um, imperative as time went on.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think it must have been fascinating for you to to watch all this unfold as you were uh, studying this population and I, I think that the fascinating
1: yeah. terrifying you know it's a it's <laughs> right. all kind of
0: intermingling <laughs> a big mix yeah of emotions there i'm sure now to me the the heart of the book is the is chapters six and seven where you describe the uh, political identities that people uh, acquire as well as the uh, different behaviors they engage in and you state at the beginning of chapter six quote that white working class people establish political identities in opposition to ethnic and racial minorities who might otherwise unite with white people as part of an important proletariat constituency, close quote. And you also note that they also feel very estranged from their fellow whites, particularly from uh, elite whites.
1: Yeah, it's a sort of double estrangement, a double alienation. On the one hand, you would think that white working class people have a lot in common with other working class people who are not you know, light skinned. Uh, and, and in light of the, um, the struggle that they und- that they go through in light of the uh difficult immobility uh of uh of the European and North American economies right now, uh in light of the, the gaping and only growing uh inequality. They have a lot in common. Uh, they can rally around each other's desires for workplace standards, for fair wages, um, for better schools, and that, that a more equal playing field. And yet they don't. And on the other hand, you might imagine that maybe white working class people—it's all about being white, uh, and maybe it's just purely racial—and that they can actually connect, you know, more closely with white people in big cities. Even though they have gross economic discrepancies, uh, discrepancies between themselves and and others, and again, that's not quite the case either. Because inside of white working class people's mind is is a lot of resentment for immigrants and a lot of resentment for people of color, um, both because of their uh, rapid ascendance and the sense of their displacement in recent years. Um, but there's also a lot of resentment or white elites who they blame for being complicit in this alteration of the social hierarchy and, and the global economy that they're touting. And so this really is, uh, creates a sense of isolation amongst white working class people because they really don't have anyone else to bond with but themselves and their resources for a sense of cohesion with, amongst each other are really, really weak.
0: And then you, you really make an interesting connection uh, between these uh, political identities with their, uh, to their political behavior, which is primarily based on their sense of relative social deprivation. So how do you see how they experience their, their, this social deprivation or their, their lost social status?
1: Well, one of the things I did when I was conducting interviews in the field, uh, was I would draw a set of concentric circles on my notepad for each interviewee and I would explain to them and you know it looks like a bullseye and I would explain to each of them that imagine that this is a sort of model of their society where the people in the bullseye people in the center uh, are the most central they're the most uh, influential they're the most important people uh, they're the people that matter and that each people, uh, the people on each ring emanating outward were less and less and less central. They were more peripheral into the fringes. And I asked each person, where do you think you are on this model today? And then I would ask them, where do you think people like you were on this model 30 years ago? And I said, people like you, because some of my subjects were quite young, they went around 30 years ago. And then I would ask, who occupies these other rings? Who is filling the space here? Where are immigrants? Where are Latinos? Where are black people? Where are Muslims in this social model? And I translated that into the survey research that accompanied the qualitative research Uh, in this book, and I asked the same questions to representative samples of white adults in the United States and also in the United Kingdom. And what I found was remarkable in the power of, first off, in the extent that white people, uh, particularly white working class people, sensed a a lost uh, status in their society. But what was also interesting was how this was clearly correlated with uh, the allure of radical right parties and candidates. It was most powerful in the United Kingdom, actually. The UKIP voters, um, the evidence was stunningly strong uh, that one of the, it's probably the principal driver of UKIP support, the United Kingdom Independence Party, um, which is the party that drove Brexit, but also the far right bastion uh, in, in the UK right now, that was driven precisely by the sense of lost status. Now, of course, I also look at political deprivation uh, as well. And and I find that in both the United States and the United Kingdom, but and, and especially I would say in the United States, that political deprivation also uh, was strongly correlated with support for the radical right. Um, and by political deprivation, I, I had two measures. One uh, where we asked people, how much do you do politicians care about you today? And then I asked, how much did politicians care about people like you 30 years ago? And I would also ask people, um, how how much power do you think people like you have today? And how much power did people like you have 30 years ago? And again, the discrepancy, the deprivation between the way the world is today and the way the world used to be is what was driving a lot of these politics, uh, in in my conclusion. And I refer to that deprivation as nostalgic deprivation. Because, you know, Richard, up until now, when we think about deprivation, we think of relative deprivation, which refers to differences in the way the world is and the way the world should be, the way the world ought to be. But in this case, what I found is that many people were actually um, putting on the pedestal the way the world used to be.
0: Yeah, that's a it's a fascinating finding and a, a very innovative technique to get to it. I think it's really, really enlightening, especially obviously with the rise first of the Tea Party, then Trump, and then Brexit and and nationalism in in the UK. And uh, since this time, we've been hearing really rhetoric, I guess, from uh, political parties in both countries of how we can actually help the white working class. And we're seeing a lot of these policies get debated and in some cases get enacted. But based on what you've learned, what are some concrete recommendations for uh, truly engaging with this population?
1: Well, there's there's two sides to this, right? So on the one hand, you know, how do we engage them and campaign to them and politically um, connect with this group of people for electoral purposes? But that's only half of it because that's just about winning elections. If we're actually serious about improving the plight of white working class people, then that's a much more substantive area to discuss, too. And I'll, I'll discuss ideas in both of those uh, with both of those regards. So first, as it, relates, as it relates to connecting with white working class people, the the Republican Party and the Democratic Party in the United States. And I'll just focus on the, on the United States for now. Uh, the book discusses uh, the United Kingdom and Europe. In the United States, the Democrats and the Republicans have basically, up until 2015, jettisoned any interest in white working class people. And it's not just because they've lost political power and lost numbers over the years in the United States. It's also because white working class people were really difficult to integrate into their emerging coalitions of, of, of supporters. For Republicans, you know, they were fine with white working class people's nativism. But it was their economic protectionism that was so problematic. For Democrats, the economic protectionism, no problem. We have, you know, folks like those under that tent. But the nativism was unacceptable. And so both parties largely kept white working class people at a distance. Um, you know, occasionally, um, reaching out and having campaign events, but generally speaking, very cautiously, gingerly uh, connecting with them. And they didn't run white working class candidates. They didn't really champion or dignify the plight of white working class people. And that message, that message was received. White working class people figured out very quickly that they didn't matter. And so to bring white working class people back in, to challenge Donald Trump's um, very deliberate appeal to white working class people, candidates from either party have to actually engage them and dignify their struggle and give and dignify their grievances in much the same way, albeit hopefully without the racist innuendo and the xenophobia. So there is an opportunity to bring white working class people back in, but it begins with acknowledgement, with recognition, with respect, and not dismissal. Now, from the perspective of the substantive, how do we make their lives better? This is a question I think that really comes down to education. There's not a whole lot we can do in the short term for a place like Youngstown, Ohio. It is built, literally, physically built for steel production that no longer exists. There's one steel manufacturer that recently reopened a plant in Youngstown um, less than a decade ago. Uh, Youngstown's potential to return as a steel power is very, very, very slim. So how do we you know, rescue these towns? It begins with a long-term plan around education. What are white working class people if not defined by the lack of a university degree. I mean, that is literally statistically how they are defined. It's just white people who do not have a university degree. Now, obviously there are other definitions you can use and I discussed it in the book, but that lack of educational attainment is predestining them to, you know, further immobility, inequality and struggle. And it's only by actually investing in the next generation that we can stop and we can intervene this cycle of inequality that has reinforced the entrenched poverty of white working class people as they have experienced it in the last 40 years.
0: Yeah, I mean, the the long term, the long view is probably the always the best one, obviously, but politicians... Uh get elected every two to six years so you're i guess they always come across the short-term quick fixes that they uh try to push um now i'm i'm curious to hear you started our chat today and you discussed in the book a little bit about how you started really or you you are uh an immigration scholar and you you've in your first book you discussed uh muslims in the west and their feelings of alienation and engagement in, in a almost in a similar sort of framework as you uh, describe the white working class in these places. So I, I'm just curious to hear some of your uh, some of uh, the comparison between what you found among the Muslims in your in your first group in your first book and the the white working class uh, in, in this book and the different conclusions or similar conclusions that you've drawn.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the book about Muslim political behavior inspired this book. You know, uh, as I said, the, you know, I found white working class people, particularly in Europe, uh, to be the primary antagonist of my Muslim subjects. And so I wanted to understand them more. And the more I thought, I thought about, it, the more I pursued an understanding, the more I realized that their alienation, that their sense of marginality, um, uh, white working class peoples, was actually not that different structurally from the alienation that was experienced by Muslims. Now, clearly, you know, they, they're experiencing it in, in different ways um, uh, in terms of their lifestyles, right? So, you know, Muslims being an outgroup and Muslims um, uh, being interested in, in a civil rights perspective, um, whereas white working class people were feeling like, they were like, a, like a lost in-group And we're interested in in their value, less from a civil rights perspective, more from a sort of heritage social perspective. But the structure of their of their sense of marginality was very similar. Both were were feeling a really strong sense of deprivation. In Muslim's case, it was all about the deprivation about how democracies ought to be. It was the democracies that they were promised were not actually coming to fruition. The white working class people, it was the loss of an era, the loss of prominence, the loss of status over time.
0: Yeah, Interesting. Two groups who, like you say, are uh, often posed as antagonists or hostile to each other that have a lot more in common than most people would think, especially them. Uh, I have and a, the
1: manifestations of their radicalization are, sure. are basically competing fundamentalisms, right? You have... You have the far right, uh, which can be violent, militant, xenophobic, and the Islamic extremists, which are also violent, and in many ways you could call them xenophobic as well. So, you know, they are each other's polar opposites, um, but they are also each other's complements in terms of uh, the the conflict that they are cementing inside of uh, Western societies right now.
0: Yes, absolutely. I think that's a very very key finding from your from your work here uh i have a methodological question so a lot of there's some really great stories in here some great backgrounds of the the people and the places that you focused on so and you you largely did interviews for for this project uh and i believe you were in these places for i think 3 months or so in each place uh correct me if i'm wrong um so I'm really curious to hear a little bit about how they reacted to to you as this uh seemingly liberal uh academic from the from the from the coasts uh from a from a blue state. Um <laughs> uh, I'm just curious to hear uh how they how they reacted to you and how you got them to open up to you about their their feelings, their lives, their backgrounds and their struggles.
1: Yeah, well, you know, first of all, I don't I don't know how much I was seemingly liberal. You know, I, I really, when I'm in the field and I'm conducting qualitative research, I am really in listening mode and it's, it's, it's not about me. It's about my subjects. And so I do everything in my power when I'm in the field to deflect any attention on me and shine the spotlight back onto the people who I care about. So I really tried to, um, to, Minimize any time discussing who I was. Um, and, uh, and I think that was, that was pretty effective. Um, but in some cases, it's inevitable that that's going to come up. You know, when I was in the United Kingdom, I have an American accent. Uh, it's pretty obvious. But actually, it was an enormous advantage to have an American accent doing this work, um, because I was an outsider. I was outside of the judgment that comes with British class relations. As an American, you know, they couldn't place me as, as posh or poor or middle class. All they knew is that I was foreign. And so that exempted me from fear that I was judging them for being white and working class. Uh in Youngstown, and and also in uh in, in Britain as well, um, I also profited from being a white male. And I don't think that we can deny that reality. Now, it's not that, you know, I couldn't have done a study, uh, on, on this group of people had I not been a white male. It just would have been a different kind of study, I suspect, because the candidness, uh, of my subjects would have changed. And I think that their comfort level with sharing some very uncomfortable thoughts and sentiments, um, uh, would have altered. It is to be flexible. Uh, about our identities and how that can change, um, you know, the relationship to the, with our subject. Um, but the qualitative research, it, the most important thing any of us can do is to make our subjects feel as comfortable as possible, because that's when we really get to open up their, their minds and learn about what they're thinking and what they're feeling, um, to not feel rushed, to not feel judged, uh, but to just feel, important and dignified by the solicitation of their, of their ideas. My subjects being marginalized, being poor, uh, being, you know, feeling peripheralized, they were not used to someone, anyone, let alone someone coming in from out of town from the university, caring about what they think. They weren't used to someone soliciting, you know, what are your ideas? You know, what are your opinions? And so I think that it was actually exciting and liberating uh, to have the opportunity to share those opinions and those ideas with me.
0: Yes, very, very interesting. Uh, I think, did you do any follow up post Brexit or post Trump research? And if not, do you think any of your findings would have changed or been different? Or do you think this is pretty much a, a clear, straight line from what you observed? five years ago, four years ago to today?
1: So I did do some follow-up research um, just to reconnect with my subjects uh, after uh, the respective elections. Um, I've also uh, been writing a follow-up book uh, that was commissioned by Oxford University Press um, kind of to be like the trade version of uh, the new minority. Uh, And so that'll come out, I think, early next year. And in in the research for that book, I've also um, gone uh, back in the field and just reconnected with a few different people uh, to learn more, but also studied a lot of the statistical analyses uh, that have emerged uh, post-Brexit referendum and uh, post-2016 election in the United States. And, yeah, I think it's largely very reinforcing uh, of the findings from this book. Um, You know, the, the elections that we have been witnessing have Really revealed a transatlantic politics uh, of populism, but that populism uh, on both sides of the pond uh, is so nostalgia-driven because they're experiencing such similar phenomena related to their engagement with globalization. And you know, when we talk about globalization, we often talk about seeing the same restaurants and the same brands and the same companies uh, and the same products. Um, when we go to different countries and, and cross borders over time. But now we're also seeing the same politics too. And uh, and I think that it's revealing the blurry of borders and, and just how uh, leaky um, the political phenomena can be from one country to the next. And I also think that the elections, you know, in the analyses that have come out, we've, we've noticed an, an immense amount of research finding uh, the power that immigration has, uh, and the role that immigration has played in the resentment of Brexit and Trump voters. Uh, almost all analyses that I have uh, read point to, uh, just how correlated, uh, support to, for the radical right. And these measures, um, were with a sense of either racial resentment or desire to deport immigrants or a, uh, a desire to halt immigration, um, You know, immigration uh, has has become um, the litmus test for a global politics, not of left versus right, but of open versus closed.
0: Fascinating. So I see we've taken up a lot of your time already. Uh, Justin, I was wondering if you would tell us, uh, you said you're working on this book, but if you have any other uh, research pursuits that you're going to be engaging in, uh, would you like to tell us about them?
1: Yeah, I've been spending a lot of my time finishing up uh, uh, that, that that kind of more trade-like edition of The New Minority, but uh, but also I just finished um, the, I think, the final draft now uh, of a book on immigration policies across 30 countries. Uh, the name of the book is Crossroads, uh, and the, the subtitle is Comparative Immigration Regimes uh, in a World of Demographic Change, and that'll be out with Cambridge hopefully next year with my co-author, Anna Boucher
0: from the University of Sydney. Well, great. Congratulations on that. And thank you so much for joining us here today. This was really, really enlightening.
1: Thanks for inviting me.
0: All right. Take care.